be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is usually a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, but we're still going to use that wide swath of information uh, because we consider it as we go along. And today we are looking at cinema and we have with us a field report from Agent L. Hello. Thanks for having me back in the in the Blue Rose Task Force HQ. So first of all, <laughs> Um, I just wanted to thank everyone for the lovely messages, the reviews um, for the podcast as a whole, but also um, some nice uh, messages for the reception of the podcast we did about psychology in the Killer Reveal arc. Really appreciate it. Uh, We love your feedback. We love your input, your questions, your engagement with what we have to say. And uh, disclaimer is that what I'm about to say here is not necessarily particularly original or certainly the, um, the definitive truth. I'm not arguing that. Um, but it just all is interesting. So for the purpose of this podcast, we are considering Twin Peaks as a cinematic text, uh, not only in light of the return, which was described as an 18 hour film, but because the original run, which has been said many times, but bears repeating, made TV cinematic and brought cinematic techniques, scale approaches, and even soundtracks to the small screen. And, you know, thus was born the prestige TV era. Um, But this idea of cinema as a dream and cinema as an expression of the psyche um, and the unconscious um, really goes back to the beginning of cinema because psychoanalysis, cinema and surrealism, uh, their inceptions were all close to each other in the late 19th century. So they're sort of this intimately linked series of phenomenons and technological um, advancements. Uh, the OG surrealists reveled in cinema as a medium for delving into depicting and then provoking the unconscious all the way from the artist's mind and dream to the mind of the viewer. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one when we ask the question, who is the dreamer in the context of this podcast, we all are when we're in the dark of a movie theater and, uh, as a result, cinema can be seen as a kind of waking dream. Yeah. I always forget how connected Um, they are to the, um, you know, like the, the time period of all, all of them happening at the same time. I always forget that, but it totally makes sense. Hmm. 
Yeah, I do as well. I think we we see cinema as such a modern thing and then we see, you know, surrealists as quite lo-fi and back in the day and and also the inception of psychoanalysis and, you know, psychology as a, a medium. But it is interesting that they all kind of occurred at the same time and uh, have this this interwoven history. Um yeah, and I think, you know, this is obviously a huge theme for David Lynch in Twin Peaks mm-hmm. and in the cinematic universe that some have argued is part of the Twin Peaks universe as well. Um, this idea of cinema as a waking dream. Um, and these bedfellows of psychoanalysis, film theory, and um, interpretation in the sense that we can try and interpret Twin Peaks and TV and the cinema at large in the same way we try and interpret our own dreams Um, with this idea of subtext or this implied meaning beneath the moving image's surface, which itself is a metaphor forever entwined with Lynch, Um, you know, that central question of what lies beneath the glossy surface of the American dream ironically sold to us via cinema Mm -hmm. and um what is the underbelly of society humanity and in twin peaks the family you know um so yeah just to give you a little bit more context in the 70s scholars like laura mulvey took this further and looked at the idea of gaze and uh she coined the seminal idea of the male gaze in cinema as a way of looking at cinema Uh, The same way we looked at literary texts with the same question of whose eyes are we seeing this from? Who is the dreamer? Who is the dream that, whose dream are we inhabiting? Um, But she sort of developed this from a a feminist perspective, which was instrumental in recent progressive moves in TV and film to show more from a women's perspective and to also just question the prevalence of women's bodies, images and sexuality used as two-dimensional devices, objects, or just straight-up eye candy. Something the Surrealists were definitely guilty of. Um, They often used parts of the woman's body completely like sort of separate to a human as images in their work. And um, they were kind of, it was a little bit dark, I think, sometimes. There's been some... Uh, analysis of surrealism is like kind of slightly obsessed with the female corpse in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, Laura's inert corpse is another iconic beginning and, and central mm-hmm. point that everything flows from initially, which I think I would be probably highly critical of if Lynch and Twin Peaks and Frost hadn't fleshed out Laura as a character, you know, via Maddie and her arc in the Red Room and then via Walk With Me in the Return. Um, so I'm glad that she wasn't just a, a piece of flesh on the, on a, uh, on a, on a table, you know, and, and, yeah. It's in, I wonder whether, and I don't know whether you know this, whether they 
kind of made up this idea of Maddie and then the fire walk with me idea that that all did come later and that actually she was meant to just be a corpse that things uh that storylines could come from yeah well i mean yeah she was uh, laura was just supposed to be kind of the origin point of the story and everything kind of comes from there just like any other tv from the day but um Mm -hmm. you know then they did want to bring uh cheryl lee back into the show so they made they made Maddie for her so that she could keep working. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, from a nuts and bolts standpoint, yeah, it wasn't exactly intentional. And I would say it's more Lynch's, um, Lynch's viewpoint. And, you know, I mean, him being a painter, Mm -hmm. him being from cinema, like it, it makes more sense that like his personality kind of helped keep bringing Laura to the surface. And Laura is the one that I think, for me, it's this before Laura and after Laura in Lynch's work mm-hmm. and his, you know, you could argue in Blue Velvet he had an interest in the woman in trouble kind of idea with Dorothy, Dorothy Vallon, but I'm not really a fan of Blue Velvet. I don't really, I don't really enjoy his work pre-Twin Peaks like I do post-Twin Peaks because, as I've said mm-hmm. before, um and other people have said too, I think Laura changed him and his exploration of what she went through just really seemed to open his eyes to the gaze coming from within the woman rather than just always from without looking at her. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a really interesting progression that we get with Twin Peaks because initially we are looking at her as an object, but also we see her through the eyes of everyone else the gaze of all the the town how she was viewed whether that was as the madonna or the whore you know the the prom queen or the the town slut to be (laughs) very uh crass and i'm obviously putting those in quotation marks um if you're interested in 1989 collection of essays edited by e ann kaplan called psychoanalysis and cinema um which is a collection of essays exploring this concept from different people's perspectives in that there is a essay by an American avant-garde filmmaker called Leslie Thornton. And um, beyond that, there's an interesting interview, 2002 interview that was done by senses of cinema, um, which actually almost could be written about Lynch, honestly, because it references uh, cinema as a form of hypnosis and, you know, putting a trance on the viewer, um, a bit like techniques used in meditation. Um, But she also talks about using nonverbal images as a way of... uh, destabilizing the narrative but then she also talks about how um boredom is actually a really helpful technique to put people in a trance and I think Lynch is such a good example of this especially in the return which we'll look at um because you know a lot of people the casual viewer might critique it or just give up on it and go this is too slow there's not enough sound track there's not enough anything going on you know I'm watching someone's you know obviously that infamous scene of the the sweeping of the floor Mm -hmm. 
But um, that's something that I really enjoy about his work is the slowness, the the subtlety, and um, in the return, the even the lack of a of a soundtrack and just this ominous drone, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes lack of dialogue as well. Just you know, just slow, ominous feeling building. Um, I'd also like to direct people to another fantastic piece. It's a 2020 essay by Ariana Di Valentino called The Screams of Women in Film and What Twin Peaks Can Teach Us About It, um, where I quote, thanks to the groundbreaking essay Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema by Laura Mulvey, the idea of the male gaze in cinema and beyond is common vocabulary for more than just feminist film scholars. The way that women's images are exploited on screen is a recurring conversation in academic and popular culture. But as scholars have pointed out, we ought to pay the same attention to the way the sounds, not just the images of female and femme bodies, play into the power dynamics of the medium. And obviously it then goes to explore the various different screams that we find in Twin Peaks, which, you know, in the pilot, we have a girl screaming. You know, it's almost like, that's the beginning that's the that's the inroads that we have to this entire story mm-hmm. that's where it really begins is that scream and how how it ends if there is such a <laughs> if there is such a thing as a beginning and end to this text um but yeah i i am aware that i think lynch uh was inspired by the famous painting, The Scream by Edward Munch and um, this central archetype of a howling, unnerved psyche. Um, And in Twin Peaks, the sound was just as crucial to the cinematic spell, Mm -hmm. you know, the visual spell that Lynch was, you know, weaving on us. Um, You know, the Bad Lamenti score is obviously so important in the original run. And then... In the return, it's this low, almost inaudible, ominous drone um, that really carried it. But the fireman tells us to listen to the sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fourth wall is kind of broken many times that way, just uh, like the Nouveau Vague um, movement, which was the, the 60s French cinema movement that... Um, was inspired in part by the surrealist movement. And that brings me to a film that I watched uh, this week to mine for Twin Peaks links. And it has been mentioned before as a template in a way for Mulholland Drive. And that's Ingmar Berman's 1966 film Persona. Um, And you could also argue definitely some threads in Inland Empire as well, which kind of feels like a companion piece to Mulholland Drive. Um, But yeah, Persona starts with this really unnerving series of subliminal images, um, Freudian, unnerving, you know, flashes of of images. Um, But it also starts with uh showing a reel of film um which is a device that i think lynch has employed in inland empire you see the record at the start 
Um, in Mulholland Drive, you see the person beginning to dream. So that's kind of like this opening implication that that's the the theme. And then in in Twin Peaks, we see also that image of the record skipping in the killer reveal scene as a kind of metaphor for the repetition of, you know, the cycle of abuse. Um, but it also works as a really good hypnotic device, this scratching yeah. record, um, and has a hypnotizing effect. Um, yeah, some, some quotes by David Lynch about cinema and dreaming are quite interesting. Um, he says, I don't remember my dreams too much. I hardly have ever gotten ideas from nighttime dreams, but I love daydreaming and dream logic and the way dreams go. In a sense, all film is entering into someone else's dream. Maybe we can even share the same dreams, exchange the same experiences. And he talks about going into a dark room and, um, I always loved that, that idea that going into a movie theater is like dreaming it's like going to sleep you go into the dark room and you're mm -hmm. transported into this fantastical bizarre on otherworldly uncanny series of images where you don't see anything else in the dark but that and the way it can provoke this emotion visceral reaction thought uh self-inquiry um just like dreams do mm. um and obviously yeah you know more holland drive is is the pinnacle of that but we have this idea of dreams that keeps being brought up to us throughout Twin Peaks, especially in, in the return. But we also have um, the self-awareness of the characters that they're inside a dream or isn't it too dreamy? Like, you know, whose perspective, whose dream are we inhabiting? Um, and yeah, in, in, a, in, Inland Empire, there's that wonderful scene. I think it's the best scene in the film where Laura Dern is in an old movie house and she's watching herself watch herself on the screen in this really unnerving, uncanny rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, I loved that. And I, I, um, we obviously get a little bit of that in Fire Walk With Me at the end where Laura her face is illuminated in the red room as though she's watching a film and she's mm -hmm. in the, you know, the, the seats in the red room are theater seats. Yeah. The curtain is like the red curtain of an old movie house. Um, and but I, I guess, um, hmm. sorry. Oh no. And I, I kind of feel like, these whole like the the way you're describing this you know it's like how you're like going into someone else's dream and it it reminds me of the giant basically you know it's like um cooper's asking where the giant came from and the giant says no it's where you have gone or you mm. know it's or where where have you gone you know the question is where have you gone so it's like you know you're mm. You know, it's not about you being in a room and the movie comes to you. It's that you're coming to the movie in a way. It's like the I think the way Lynch thinks about it is kind of like a meet you halfway kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. But always with that ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 
And um, I think this is why Lynch refuses to explain his work as well and <laughs> stays clear of the Frost style for explaining mythology and accompanying books. But because abstraction is the magic trick to show the smoke and mirrors involved or describe the image doesn't allow the viewer to dream themselves and for the images to evoke their own personal reaction to that, which is a psychoanalysis tool that Freud and, and Jung, you know, employed. And you have to allow our psyche to be as much a part of the text as the text Mm -hmm. in a surrealist work like that. I, I think in his opinion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the film persona is an interesting one. Um, it was pretty revolutionary in its depiction of internal psychology because the, the nouveau vagues, uh, or like French new wave was definitely getting there, but that this film seems to go deeper into the actual individual's psyche. Um, and it has some incredible shots and camera techniques and really, really recommend the film. And you'll definitely, definitely see the influence that, that Lynch uh, derived from it. Um, you get a woman in trouble. <laughs> mm -hmm. You get blurred identity. You get uh, family as the site of trauma. Um you get a dreamlike uh, uh, feeling with lots of strange, uncanny moments. Um, you get a sort of doppelganger effect in a way with the two lead ladies at points, their identity is completely blurred. You're not entirely sure who is who. Um, you get a jarring dissonant soundtrack um references to freud um you get images of a mental hospital which we get flashes of with audrey in the return and allusions to that in the books around her fate um we get a, a wonderful role a, a wonderful piece of dialogue from a doctor in the mental hospital talking about lies and acting a role and that definitely spoke to me about the meta nature of Twin Peaks. Um, yeah, especially in season we, three where he'll, you know, just drop in the random references. Like, yeah, it's like, mm. I've always thought season three in a way is kind of like him honoring the things that, that got him here, basically. And, um, I, yeah, I see it I agree. kind of that way, but it's more than just a pastiche. Yeah, he's using like he's using the technique to give us what it gave him in the first place. So like he's only using it you know, mm. appropriately to explain things, kind of like how you've you've been talking about how he uses cinema. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's a lot of homages and um it, it does seem like a big collection of everything that's that's gone before and all of his all of his um influences mm -hmm. and um and i mean in persona there's even like a direct uh, he's kind of stolen a little uh, um 
lo-fi special effect where you get the actual film burning through and kind of crinkling. It's hard to explain, but it looks like the actual thing that you're watching burns and crinkles as though you're suddenly like being told this is, this is a not only like a metaphor for memory that's kind of eroding, but like, you know, the fourth wall's broken and you get that in episode eight in the effects that he uses in in the opening of that um and also you get some talking backwards you get some (laughs) absolutely pure twin peaks talking backwards um that maybe just sit up and and smile um you also get a sparse setting at times but then you get these little flashes of of real life bleeding through so the main character elizabeth starts off the film in a mental hospital as i said and um she's in this minimal hospital bedroom where you don't have it's you know quite surreal mm-hmm. but then the tv is showing actual real footage of um the Buddhist monk who set himself on fire. And this is like super you know, disturbing for her to watch. But another, another case of this like blurring of, of the fourth wall and um, yeah. Questioning where are the, where are the characters in relation to reality? If this is a dream, is it? Yeah. It, it starts getting, <laughs> it starts getting quite tricky in the mind to yeah. even, uh, slippery is a way of describing it. Um, but yeah, the main theme that I got from persona was this focus of the psyche of a woman and actually living inside her experience of memory and trauma and, uh, mental illness and, um, definitely a gaze from within her mind. Um, but also, yeah, grappling with, you know, sexual desire, rejection of motherhood, identity, and uh, definitely could be seen as a feminist text. And, uh, you know, I love to see that. I love to see the early texts that still had these uh, progressive ways of showing women. And, you know, it's still from the 60s, but I, I would say it's pretty, pretty on point. And, um, yeah something I can see Lynch being inspired by in how he also tried to inhabit the women that he was using as muses and characters. Yeah, it sounds about right. Um, so the other film I watched for my homework, which again has been written about a lot in terms of Lynch's influences is sunset boulevard Mm -hmm. um the billy wilder 1950 classic it is so good and it just stands the test of time it's just gripping every single second um and uh this time we get more of a a male gaze we get the voice of the narrator who we're not entirely sure who it is i wondered whether it was maybe a detective um, but 
obviously the big link with Sunset Boulevard and Twin Peaks as a text, which is a direct portal, is um, the fact that there's a character called Gordon Cole who we never actually see in Sunset Boulevard. He's a movie executive or producer, something of that ilk, Mm -hmm. who um, we hear his name. And this is what wakes Agent Cooper up from his Dougie dream-like state. Um, it, I, you know, for a 1950 film, I would say it's really progressive in its um, commentary on how women, especially then, and you know, probably still are kind of used up and discarded by the Hollywood system. And certainly, you know, I think Norma Desmond in the, in the film is can't be more than like 50, but she's mm-hmm. <laughs> constantly framed and described and made to feel like this absolute has been like, there's nothing left in her. Like she's got nothing more to give. Mm-hmm. They're not interested. And, um, how this kind of sends her, mad um for want of a better word um we get two bettys as well we get the word the name betty twice we get a betty schaefer and we get a betty uh hutton um we get a lovely bit of dialogue where someone says there was something below which could be a tagline for all of David Lynch's yeah. work. Um, it's very dreamlike. There's a sort of like unnerving sense of, are we really seeing what really happened? Are we seeing some of this from Norma's perspective? Are we seeing it from um, Joe's perspective? Mm. Are we seeing it from an omni- omnipotent narrator's perspective? Um, yeah. But it's got a lot of that. Um, I like to remember it my own way, or what, whatever the uh, mm. whatever the line from Lost Highway is. It ha- it does have a lot of that. That's for sure. Definitely. <clears throat> and um, uh, I just felt so much for Norma Desmond, and it, it mm. really gets me. Just like uh, Betty in Mulholland Drive, I think. Just tragic figures and. Uh, I can't, couldn't help but wonder. And then I did go, did a, do a quick Google search and found many other people have wondered whether Norma Desmond is actually a really iconic, possibly caricature, but uh, has borderline personality disorder traits, um, which links to what I was uh, hypothesizing about Laura and and Sarah in Twin Peaks and um, this image of the borderline woman as um, unhinged, delusional, disassociative and extreme fear of abandonment to the point of, um, to the point of murder. Sorry if that's a spoiler alert, but it is a film from the 1950s. (laughs) I think we're okay here. Um, We might have to put a spoiler alert in the, in the front. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a scene where she's tangoing on the tiles with Joe in this tragic New Year's Eve party with just him and her, a whole buffet of uneaten food and caviar and undrunk champagne. And um, 
it made me think of the scene with Leland dancing with Maddie as this sort of like unnerving dance to death, you know, mm-hmm. like it was, it's, um, yeah, this subversion of a happy scene into something ominous. Um, Norma has a, has a, an obsession with astrology, um, which we see threads of astrology woven in, I'm pretty sure by frost into twin peaks with this idea, uh, that's coming in the, in a season two finale of the stars aligning at certain points, these fated moments, mm-hmm. these, uh, star crossed, uh, tragedies that seem to be out of the character's hands. Um, yeah, but I don't know what you think about why Lynch decided to name himself Gordon Cole. <laughs> well, uh, Lynch and Frost had a had a funny joke about Gordon Cole, and they even tried to put him into one saliva bauble. But it's basically like you know they've got this one character who has all this power, and we never get to see him. So like you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like. You know, the, this, um, you know, it, it's the fact that he's off screen. It's the fact that, you know, he has the ability to make something happen. And like, they, they just thought that was a, a fun kind of mm. thing to riff off of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, before I watched the film, I assumed <laughs> that Gordon Cole was a detective or director mm. of something in, in Sunset Boulevard. But yeah, that's kind of nicer that it's actually a character you never see um, yeah and but that has this little yeah and it's like you said you know it's like could have been a detective could have been this you know it's like he could have been anything <laughs> and they just a lot of things yeah they, they loved that like you know it's like you don't know anything about this guy but he can make it happen mm, yeah yeah, and he does in the in the return. He he's such a pivotal. His name simply being mentioned is what finally turns the car around and mm-hmm. gets <clears throat> our agent back in the game. Uh, or does he? I guess is the yeah. question <laughs> that we'll come to. Or does he? Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, Sunset Boulevard overarching theme. Um, obviously Hollywood. Uh, treatment of women, you know, mental illness. Um, but more than that, something that we see in the return of, of this, this bitterness and nostalgia of time past, of opportunities gone, of aging, um, of your heyday being behind you. And um, obviously we see this played out more with, agent cooper Mm. but i think that's possibly because lynch had already explored that idea with um betty in maholland drive and laura dan's character in inland empire um but yeah i would say sunset boulevard could be seen as a feminist text as well which also made me glad to see Mm. and um another another film that explores um the treatment of women and uh, yeah, could definitely see these threads, you know, throughout everything Lynch has done. Yeah. Um, I just, 
always want to live in the the reality where Audrey had her spin off in Hollywood. <laughs> um, you know, I still I would want to live in a reality where Mulholland Drive the film still existed because it's just so good. Mm-hmm. But um, I would have really loved to have seen where he took the Twin Peaks world into the Hollywood world. And, um, I guess, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think it probably wouldn't have been too much Twin Peaks. I, I think it would have been a lot like how, you know, part 18 kind of matches up with it, but, um, you know, it also feels mm-hmm. kind of like it's its own thing. I mean, Richard and Carrie, you know, it's like, it's, it'll it'll have like the same kind of vibe but like otherwise it'll probably be more like on the air mm, yeah 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 i guess so yeah that, that'd be yeah. my guess anyway although you know yeah you're right yeah i guess we got on the air didn't we which is as, as close to <laughs> um and then yeah just to to close i won't go deeply into it but um we have mentioned the shining and i do think that for me I see that more than I see anything else in the first season because we see so much of the mm-hmm. of the hotel as this yeah this this you know we see the Palmer's house and we see the hotel with the horns both as these sites of trauma um within the family but then also um especially with the hotel this you know, constant imagery of the Native American artwork. And obviously in The Shining, they allude to it being built on an ancient Indian burial ground, um, which I know Stephen King loved that. He he did that in a lot of his <laughs> books. <laughs> but, you know, Kubrick kept that in for, for good reason and also had artwork in the Overlook Hotel that, you know, I feel like, I feel like Twin Peaks and The Shining happen in the same universe in my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Where we get these same questions. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be too surprised if, you know, Lynch and Frost kind of were okay with them being in the same kind of universe. Yeah. It feels, it feels right. And, um, yeah, especially in the original you know, the first season and the first half of the second season, this blurring of the lines between whether violence and abuse is Mm -hmm. caused by a demonic entity or a sickness deep in the psyche. Um, And obviously this theme of reincarnation, which we get in The Shining with the final image of uh, Jack Nicholson's character um, as, you know, he was always the caretaker um in this 1920s picture and i definitely think um frost and lynch have riffed on the idea of reincarnation oh yeah um through maddie as a reincarnated or incarnated laura and leland as a kind of reincarnated bob um and then that you know the further splitting of certain characters in the return Mm -hmm. um and Stanley Kubrick actually flat out said the ballroom photograph at the very end suggests the reincarnation of Jack. So he left no ambiguity on that front. Um, but Jack Nicholson's character becomes this everyman for 
wider historical trauma and abuse, but as you know, also ancestral trauma and violence and abuse, just as as Leland and his echoes in Ben Horn signify in in Twin Peaks, the original, um, and not pleasant at all to say the least. But uh, in the Shining, childhood sexual abuse is definitely heavily implied. Um, but never explicitly spoken of. And, um, just in, just as in, you know, the original run of Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. we don't get that confirmation of what actually happened until we get Laura's diaries and, um, fire walk with me. Um, but we just see this abstraction. Generational trauma is a major thing in season three. And, um, also in, um, you know, secret history of Twin Peaks and all, you know, the mm. Frost side. And I think, I don't know, I, I think probably Frost brought in generational trauma more in, mm. in execution. But, um, yeah, mm. I, I think, I think it's definitely a recurring theme that like comes back even after, um, even after the great Northern becomes the site for, um, Ben Horn to almost reincarnate into a new kind of persona. Mm. you know like yeah. it it lets him cocoon and then you know he comes out and you know, it's like i'm gonna do good and all that but then like we kind of see it through mm-hmm. the end so like almost the uh the great northern almost made it out of its cycle in a way through ben yeah yeah and i think <clears throat> with twin peaks partly what makes it so enduring and endearing is the fact that it's not all evil you know there's an ambiguity to Mm -hmm. what lies in the woods and where the portals lead it's not always bad we're we're not sure whether the the spirits you know are benevolent or malevolent a lot of the time and you know sometimes it's sometimes it's clear but Mm. generally it's it's a bit it's a bit up for debate yeah and I guess that's um, that's why we love it. You know, we love the nuance. We love the the mystery um, because it it's a, a more accurate re- reflection of our own psyches and our own world that we live in. You know, we we so much of cinema and TV. I think you know the bulk of it over its history has been very binary, very clear. Who was good who was bad and um as it's developed we've become we've you know received a lot higher quality work and and work that looks at characters as flawed but not you know all good or all bad um just as we'll see with with agent cooper and you know laura herself so yeah i'll just say thank you for tuning in again and um as i said at the start we love to hear from you we love to get your reviews on itunes we love to get your interaction questions uh input so please do feel free we listen to everything you say and we we are hoping to do an episode soon with more questions from you guys so let us know what you think all right. Well, it's always a pleasure having you having you here to <laughs> discuss anything with Elle. And um, yeah, we'll we'll have you back soon again. Well, thanks for having me.
You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore on Twitter or JPB underscore little green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore peaky on Instagram. How about you, Elle? Where can we find you? Sure. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at E11E sounds. Good deal. And we can visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as Ruminations of the Red Room and Tony's Tall Tales. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. You can find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at 25YearsLaterSide.com and TVObsessive.com. And if you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, which Elle is definitely saying to do, and I am too, so please bring it to us so we can have another episode soon. Uh, send any comments, questions, or feedback to our social medias or Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time as we cover episode 20, the 21st overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand, deepen the universe. The show takes places. The show takes places. This is a, a gift to all the fans.